Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray for your help now so that what I say is faithful to the Bible. It's your word that counts, not mine, and so grant that mine would accord with yours. And then I pray for discernment in the minds, and I pray for receptivity in the hearts of these, your people. I pray that Jesus Christ would be magnified, that we would be purified, that there would be a fresh boldness in our hearts for the cause of your kingdom. I pray that the river of your delights would, would flow through this building and that those who are dying of thirst would have the taste buds of their souls awakened and discover that you are the most satisfying reality in the universe. And I pray for the quickening of gifts in pastoral ministry. And I pray that many will fall in love again with the calling that rests upon them. And I pray that in the meantime, churches would be awakened and revived so that when we go home, we would find them happy in God and eager to listen and grow and spread a passion for your supremacy in all things for the joy of all peoples. So come now and minister to us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. As I was pray, pray, praying last night about how to start, um, these four things came to my mind as stage-setting, orient, orienting thoughts. Uh, just so happens they all start with P. <laughs> Peril. Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, and so I think my proper demeanor should be trembling. Not only am I teaching you, I am teaching teachers. I am doubly in peril. So I take that very seriously, and you should too. There should not be a kind of cavalier spirit about approaching the Word of God. It is an awesome thing to take in hand God's holy word and claim to be interpreting it correctly. Number two, privilege. That was James 3.1. This is Jeremiah 3.15. I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. God intends for Australia to have shepherds who feed the flock. If I could be pleased, along with John Lennox and all the seminar leaders today, to be used in a little way to make the feeding of the flocks across this nation and beyond, as I understand, more faithful to God's word, what a privilege that would be. Third, pleasure. I am talking about things here that I love to talk about. There is zero Burden in having to talk about what I'm going to talk about here. I choose to talk about this. And I chose these messages not because I'm in Sydney and not because I'm in Australia, but because I'm in the universe ruled by a sovereign God of grace. I have said the same thing in Samara 
Russia. I've said it in Bonn, Germany. I've said it in Johannesburg, South Africa. I've said it in Sao Paulo. Don't feel picked on. You will feel picked on, but you don't need to because the only reason is because you're human, not Australian or wherever. So you can disabuse yourself that I came with a message for Sydney. I didn't. I came for a message for human beings. And I just, I just pause here to say, when we adopted a little girl who happens to be a different race from us, and we thought, um, how will that be? This thought nailed it for me. That Talitha is human, and that Talitha is African-American, are one to a billion in comparison. Get that? That that you are created in the image of God as human beings is a billion. That you live in Australia is minus one. I totally believe that. And therefore, I don't really care where you live. What I have to say is so massively important for human beings all over the globe. It doesn't matter to me where you're from or where you live I'm, I'm not into contextualization, so that's a flaw. <laughs> Deal with it. The last P is plan. I hope I don't wreck anybody's, you know, type A personality, but I'm shuffling my topics around here, and it's just going to mess up what's in the program so let me tell you what I'm doing. It's all the same content, but as I, as I thought it through, I thought, there's just one more thing I need to say, and so I'm going to kind of combine and adjust. So today's topic is God's passion for his glory, and you can add in Christ, if you like. I like it. God's passion for his glory in Christ. And then tonight... Feel Christ. So you see that's out of order. And then think Christ. And then preach Christ. And I'm adding show Christ. Okay, so that, I just got that burden yesterday that this should be ending that way. And uh, so I, I hope that's okay. So God's passion versus glory. Feel Christ, think Christ, preach Christ, show Christ. So that's, those are the four P's. In case you wondered what they were again, peril, privilege, pleasure, plan. Now, here we are with this topic, God's passion for his glory in Christ. And they set the stage with some illustrations from contemporary and a little more distant reactions to what I'm going to say. And then go to the scriptures and defend uh, my point. And my, my thesis is God is infinitely passionate for his glory. God is radically God-centered. Christ is massively Christ-exalting. So that's, that's the thesis. I'll, I'll try to say why it matters to me to say that, how it shapes everything I do, how I think you should embrace it, and what difference it will make. But that it's relevant is shown by some of these stories I'm going to tell you now about the reactions of human beings to that truth in the Bible. Let's start with Eric Ries. I don't assume you've ever heard of him. He's a writer in residence at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. 
in the United States. He's professor of environmental journalism and writing and literature. He wrote a book called An American Gospel on Family, History, and the Kingdom of God. He'd grown up in a fundamentalistic home. He threw it all away. He's not a believer anymore. And he was interviewed on public radio, national public radio. um, And Terry Gross, the interviewer, pinned him on a sentence and asked him to expand on it. On page, um, where is it? Doesn't matter what page it's on. On... Uh, on page 28 in his book, he quotes Matthew 10:37, and it goes like this. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it and Eric Reese comments, who is this egomaniac speaking these words? Now, he's on the radio now, and she says, she quotes that. She says, you want to expand on that? Because she's kind of shocked that somebody would in public call Jesus an egomaniac. And here's what he said. I I went on to their online and wrote it down. Well, It just struck me as, who is this person speaking 2,000 years ago, a complete historical stranger, saying that we should love him more so than we should love our own fathers and sons? It just seemed incredibly egomaniacal. Is it? I mean, if any of you stood up and said... Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. You couldn't join my church. I would call you names. Like egomaniac. That is an understandable response on the face of it. When somebody talks like that, that's weird. There's Eric Reese. C.S. Lewis, everybody's heard of him, before he was converted, age 29, stumbled over the exact same reality in the Bible. Remember in his book on the Psalms, he said that when he read the Psalms, which were filled with divine summons to praise, praise God, praise God, praise God, and the Christians say, God's inspiring that. He said it sounded to him like God was craving for, this is a quote, for our worship like a vain woman who wants compliments. So you got Eric Reese and C.S. Lewis before his conversion stumbling over God's self-exaltation in the Bible. Really stumbling. Michael Prowse a writer for the London Financial Times reviewed a book a few years ago, I forget, maybe 2005 or six, and bring the article with me, I just wrote it down here. And here's what he wrote, 2003, I have it here in my notes. Worship is an aspect of religion I always found difficult to understand. Suppose we postulate 
an omnipotent being who, for reasons inscrutable to us, decided to create something other than himself. Why should, we be, why should he expect us to worship him? We didn't ask to be created. Our lives are often troubled. We know that human tyrants, puffed up with pride, crave adulation and homage. But a morally perfect God would surely have no character defects. So why are all these people on their knees every Sunday? For him, a God who says, worship me, worship me, worship me, is a craven God who is desperately in need of ego approval. Maybe one or two last illustrations. Oprah Winfrey. It's a sad lady. Really sad. She did a, an interview, which is on YouTube. So I went there and copied, copied out what she said about her pilgrimage of faith. She grew up in a Christian home. She was a church-going woman until about age 28. And then this happened. She, she says, she's at a church, and they were celebrating the omnipotence and the omnipresence of God, and she was loving it. Then he said, this is a quote, then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said, jealous. And something struck me. I was 27 or 28, and I was thinking, God is all, God is omnipresent, God is also jealous? A jealous God is jealous of me? Something about that didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. End of quote. Now, Exodus 34, 14 says, God speaking, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4.24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, which means he intends to have all of your affections. No other husband. None. All of it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. If you give any of it away, he's jealous. He's very angry. He gets very angry when any of your affection goes away from him to a competitor. So, Eric Reese, C.S. Lewis, Michael Prowse, and Oprah stumble over my thesis because I'm arguing they've seen it truly Christ is Christ exalting God is God centered and God exalting and passionate for his glory above all things 
And I would argue that's right at the center of our faith, where the cross is. You say, isn't the cross at the center? I would say yes. And it's the intersection of God's passion for his glory with my rebellion against it that creates the cross. And if either of those, my hatred of his centrality and his passion for his centrality, if we don't get those, we won't get the cross. If that's not part of our ministry, the massive centrality of God in the universe and the centrality of God in his plan and his affections, the cross will be smaller than it should be in our preaching. We won't get to the root of it. We'll get to that later. My story is that I grew up in a home with a dad passionate for the glory of God, an evangelist. And I, I think I heard him use the word glory. He pronounced it glory. He always divided the syllables after O, not after R. And he was in his prayers all the time. And the text that probably he put in letters to me and spoke to me as much as any text is, Johnny, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, son, do it all to the glory of God. So I grew up, that was just part of what Christianity was. But you know a sentence I never heard from him or my pastor growing up or anybody until I was 23 years old was God does everything for his glory. (laughs) I missed that. God does everything for his glory. Not just it's your duty to do everything for his glory, but it's God's design that he do everything for his glory. And my doing everything for his glory is a joining of him in the purpose of the universe that he does. I didn't, I didn't see that. And the reason it's important to see is that it becomes a test. It's the way it works for me, and I've watched it work this way with a lot of people. It becomes a test of your God-centeredness. Here's the test you need. So you sit there, and as a Christian, surely you would want to say, I am a God-centered person. Or you could say Christ-centered, whatever you want to say. Your whole life centered on him, with him as the supreme value, not yourself. That's what you'd want to say, I hope. Now, the test there is, along comes God and says, I am radically God-centered. I exalt myself in everything I do. I don't make one move, but that I intend for my name to be magnified in it. If you don't like that, if that doesn't sit well with you, if you say, I'm not sure I like a God like that, it might be that you're failing the test. And the test is, is my God-centeredness only a cloak for me-centeredness because I'm God-centered because I totally believe he is me-centered? Your people need help with this. 
There are many people who are swept into Christianity under a message that puts them squarely at the center. And along comes a message like this that says, God makes himself the center always and everywhere. He is passionate about being central in his own affections. How do you feel about that? And the test, the litmus paper goes in the chemical. If I am only God-centered because God is centered on me, I am me-centered. And God-centeredness is a cloak. Therefore, it was very, very crucial for me to be confronted with this God. So now we're at the Bible. All this talk so far, hardly any Bible. Is it so? Is God not just calling me to be God-centered, but is he calling me to join him in his God-centeredness? Does God make it his rule to do all that he does from eternity to eternity in order to make much of himself? And so I invite you to follow me in some texts. And I've chosen to do it this way. Um, We're going to walk through central biblical doctrines that accord with points in history. Predestination, creation, incarnation, propitiation, sanctification, consummation. Those are the Asians we're going to work on. And then maybe toss in a few others along the way too. And the point is this. From predestination in eternity past to consummation forever, I'm arguing everything God does, he does to make much of his glory. To uphold and display and vindicate and magnify his name. That's what he does. That's what drives God in everything he does. Number one, predestination. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So follow the logic and where it's all going. He predestined us, why? So that we could be adopted as his sons. How? Through Jesus Christ. To what end? To himself. According to what will? According to his own will. For what ultimate purpose? Unto the praise of the glory of his grace. So now collapse that all down into an understandable, simple sentence for your people. God in eternity chose and predestined a people so that they would join him in praising his grace forever. He did that. I want to be praised. I want to be praised. I will make sure by predestination that I am praised forever. And I want to be praised. And this this word will start to move towards a key. 
I want to be praised for the apex of my glory, which is what in this text? Tell me. Grace. Which means, you take a deep breath, maybe, maybe God's self-exaltation is good news. Maybe, after all, it's the best news in all the world. Maybe. Creation. Isaiah 43, 6. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. So if you were to ask me, do you know why I was created? I say, I absolutely know. I don't care if you live in Sydney or Minneapolis or where you live. I don't care if it's in Africa or Asia. I know why you were created. I know why you're on the planet. Because it says so in the Bible. I don't even need to know you to know why you exist. You were created for the glory of God. Now, that's an ambiguous statement. Because glorify is an ambiguous verb. Beautify is an ambiguous word. Magnify is an ambiguous word. There's a blasphemous way to understand it and a worshipful way to understand it. Isn't there? I mean, to beautify a house... It's to mean make it more beautiful. That's blasphemy. You've got to beautify God. Magnify. The most helpful thing I've ever discovered is this analogy between a magnifying glass and a telescope. They both magnify, right? A magnifying, or let's say microscope. A microscope that you look through magnifies. And a telescope that you look through magnifies. Now... How does a microscope magnify? It makes something that is teeny look bigger than it is. So if you magnify God that way, you're a blasphemer. When we sing songs like magnify, we need to know what we're singing because otherwise the song is blasphemy. But if you, if you look through a telescope, what, do you, what happens Something that looks teeny, don't they? I mean, they're just little specks in the sky. They're called stars. Something that looks teeny is made to look like what it is, like 50 light years across this galaxy that looks like a star. Now, when I say, when, when the Bible says God created us to magnify him or for his glory, that's what it means. You walk through Australia with a prayer, Oh God, make my life a telescope because you look tiny to this nation. You're barely a speck on their flat screen. Make me an instrument of magnification so that something I say and something I do will cause them to say, whoa, God is not small. So you were created for that. That's why you're on the earth. God put you here to make him look like what he really is. 
You were created in his image. What do images do? They image. Image is image. If I made an image of me and put it here, there'd be one motive. I want you to recognize me in that. You're in his image. It's real simple. He wants people to recognize him in you. That's what it's for. That's what you're for. You're for God. Incarnation. Big jump there from creation, incarnation. I may come back to Israel in a minute. Romans 15, 8 and 9. Romans 15, 8. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. That means he was incarnate as a Jew, Jewish Messiah. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the Father. So there's one reason for the incarnation. He came to make God trustworthy, to make him look trustworthy like he really is, to secure the promises that are infallibly true. And then he says, and... For the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. So Christ came, servant to the circumcision, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So now I know two reasons for the incarnation. Confirm the promises to Israel Make the nations see him as glorious because of mercy spilling over the banks of Israel onto the nations. And there it is again, that hint that this just might be the best news in all the world. Mercy. Mercy. It was grace. Now it's mercy. There's a seminary in our hometown where I used to talk to the students. They had to write a senior paper called uh, an integrating paper to take three or four years of seminary work and distill everything they've learned into what's the point of it all. That, this is my, my paper. But I didn't do it. I, I would argue with them because a lot of them would come out and say, the love of God. The Bible says so. God is love. Or the kingdom of God. You know, these integrating pieces. I said, well, you can, you can work on that. It's just not the ultimate not the ultimate. I mean, you, can, you can use that. It's just not the ultimate. Why isn't it the ultimate? Well, because of verse 9 of Romans 15. It says that the incarnation happened so that the Gentiles would glorify God because of his mercy. You don't get these backward. Mercy leads us to see and esteem and value and treasure his glory. It's not the other way around. Ultimate is God and his glory. And he's merciful. And he's so merciful that we are springboarded into his glory and spend eternity magnifying it. Propitiation. I like the word. I think we should keep the word. And my text is Romans 3, 25 and 26. This may be the most important verse in the Bible. 
the most important paragraph in the Bible, if I had to vote, that would get my vote anyway. Whom God put forth or displayed, verse 25 of Romans 3, whom God put forth or displayed publicly as a propitiation, that means When you propitiate somebody, you take their anger away. You do something, in this case, a a, a sacrifice that satisfies God's righteous wrath and anger. And so his, his wrath is stilled. It's propitiated. It's not flowing against its targets anymore. It was absorbed by Jesus on the cross. This is the glorious center of our faith. As a propitiation by his blood or in his blood, through faith. Now here it comes. This, this propitiating, glorious, saving, redeeming work on the cross through death by blood, this was to demonstrate his, God's righteousness. Well, why did the righteousness of God need to be demonstrated? showed, made publicly obvious. And the next phrase tells you why. Because in the forbearance or patience of God, he passed over sins previously committed. There's not a single pagan American who thinks that's necessary. or Australian, that God's passing over, that is, not punishing sins, is a problem that needs a solution in the death of God Almighty? What? That's what they expect. Forgiveness is what God does passing over my sins and letting me into heaven in spite of them is what a good, gracious, loving God just does. Paul said that God's passing over sins was so massively problematic, Christ had to die to vindicate God in it. Which makes no sense unless sin is a falling short of the glory of God. Have you ever wondered why verse 23 reads the way it does? And why it follows upon 123 where we've exchanged the glory of God for images. What, what do you say about God when you exchange the glory of God for a Mac or an iPhone or pizza or a job promotion or sex? Or, what does it say about God when you exchange the glory of God for something else? It says he's not worth much, which is the opposite of reality. And it's an insult to God Almighty. And he is furious. That's what verse 23 of chapter 3 corrects or defines. We've all sinned, meaning we've trampled on the glory of God by treating other things as more precious, more valuable. We do it every day. And God hasn't thrown you into hell yet, which means he's passing over. He's passing over, which means he doesn't love his glory. 
Which means he's unrighteous. Righteous means doing the right thing. And for God to belittle God is wrong. And that's what he's doing all through the Old Testament. Unless something's coming that will vindicate God's apparent neglect of his glory. Just keeps passing over. David, murder, adultery. Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. I mean, what if you were Uriah's dad? Bathsheba's mom. You're just going to say, the Lord has taken away your sin. Blah, blah, blah. He should die. The only just thing is for David to die. My kid is dead. My girl is pregnant. This rascal's getting off for nothing. That's what Paul's thinking when he says, the truth of God, I'm sorry, he passed over sins previously committed and therefore he needs to now demonstrate the righteousness of God. And how did he demonstrate? The fact that he loves his glory more than he loves anything in the world. He sends his son in the world to die to vindicate his righteousness and his glory. That's how much he values his glory. The cross, the cross as I said at the beginning, is the center of our faith. And the cross is the loudest proclamation of God's passion for God. How many people skew the grace of God by making themselves the center of the cross. It's all about my value. He found a diamond in the rough and then he paid for me. Whoa, what a value I must have. Be careful. Sanctification. Philippians chapter 1. So we've been through Predestination, creation, incarnation, propitiation. Here we are at sanctification. This is the prayer of Philippians 1. Now, prayers are made to whom? God. So keep that in mind as we read these these verses. This I pray, God, that your love may abound. I mean, I'm sorry, he's saying this to the to the Philippians. This I pray that your love may abound. He's praying to God that their love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And now I'm skipping to verse 11. So that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And I'll collapse that down. God, I pray that you will cause the Philippians to be filled with the fruits of righteousness through Jesus Christ to your praise. I'm asking you to make sure they get sanctified so that you will get praise. You sanctify them so that you will be praised. And, and he wouldn't pray that if God said, I don't act that way. I don't, I don't act for my own sake that way. He only can pray that because that's exactly the way God acts. You are being sanctified. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is being worked in your life so that through Jesus Christ, God would be praised. God, God the Holy Spirit 
is sanctifying you for the sake of the glory of God the Son and God the Father. 1 Peter 4.11 Let him who serves So I'm thinking, all right, serve, that's part of my acted out holiness. Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God would get the glory through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the dominion forever. So think that one through. God supplies so that in everything God would get the glory through Jesus, his dominion. The giver gets the glory. That's the, the giver gets the glory. So do your obedience by receiving from God the enabling to praise God, to do these things in such a way that God would be magnified. So sanctification, all the changes that are being wrought in us by the Holy Spirit are being wrought by God for God. To make God look good. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to God. God is doing that. God makes those good works happen. We're created for those good works. So sanctification is God purifying us to be a beautiful display of his glory. And lastly, consummation. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, a magnificent description of the second coming. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So why is he coming? Two reasons are given. Jesus Christ is coming to be glorified in his saints. Second, to be marveled at among all who have believed. So Jesus is coming to be to receive glory, and he's coming to receive marvel. So if you ask Jesus, why are you coming back? He would say, I'm coming back to receive glory. I'm coming back to be marveled at from my people. And all the, I would argue all the other purposes of his coming would be under those. There isn't anything beyond those. It's the way my mind is always working with my Bible. I'm, I'm always pushing on my Bible to the ultimate. I'm trying to. Whether I can get there is another question. But I want to know what's the ultimate implication. What's the ultimate meaning? Because I only have one little life. I may never come back to Australia. I don't know. I hate crossing 17 hours of time zones. It just kills my body. But anyway, I'm here and I've got just a little, little window to talk about something. Why, why would I want to talk about anything peripheral? There is, there's nothing more ultimate, more valuable, or beyond your valuing and treasuring and displaying the glory of God in your life forever. That's it. It's not a means to anything. So that's my little tour through redemptive history to show that God does everything he does from predestination to creation to incarnation to 
propitiation to sanctification to consummation for one great purpose, namely magnify his glory, make himself look magnificent, preserve, vindicate, uphold, display his infinite beauty. I just replaced the word glory with beauty. And I said I might go back and toss in a few words about Israel. Let me do that for just two minutes. Jeremiah 13, 11. Why was Israel chosen? Why did God work for 2,000 years through Israel? I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. That's why I did it. Why did he save them in Egypt? This is the central redeeming moment in the life of Israel. They remembered it for centuries. This is why Psalm 106, verse 7. Our fathers rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea, yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his power. He saved them that he might make known his power, not the other way around. He saved them that he might make known his power. That's how Rahab got saved. Just a little window on the evangelistic implications of what I'm saying. Rahab said the reason she is doing what she's doing is because the word came, your God is strong. I ain't messing with it. Or I'll read the most God-centered two verses in the Bible. Roman, I mean, Isaiah 48, 9, and 11. And there are six hammer blows of God's God-centeredness. So here he is. This is God talking, and he's explaining, why didn't I wipe out Israel in Babylon? Why have I been patient? Why have I restrained my anger against her? Why did you do that, God? Is it because they're so valuable? Here's what he says, Isaiah 48, 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Well, when I was 23, I read The End for Which God Created the World by Jonathan Edwards, and page after page after page after page of such texts so cascaded over my brain that I have never been the same since. Noelle's sitting down here. She can remember the days. And I said to her one time, sitting at home, I said, you know how you can tell when a couple who are newly married are being turned upside down? Their prayer life. Their prayer life. Suddenly, hallowed be thy name. <laughs> so obvious. Well, yeah, that would be the first thing you'd ask. Make your name precious and holy and set apart as infinitely valuable to me. It's my first prayer every day. Okay, back to the beginning. We're trying to wrap things up. See if I can draw the draw the circle, back with C.S. Lewis and Reese and, and Oprah 
and, and prowess. Lewis wrote reflections on the Psalms after he became a Christian, of course. Something changed. No longer did the Psalms seem like an old woman demanding compliments when God said, Praise me! Praise me! Praise me! That, that no longer sounded defective to him. Why? I'm going to read you the key sentences. These are the kinds of things that when you're young, you know, in your 20s, and just lights are going on everywhere, sentences like this just scream out of the book and change everything. It just That's why I said one time, books don't change people. Paragraphs change people. I can't remember what's in a book. How could it change me? I can remember a sentence. And this is one of them. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what we indeed can't help doing about everything we value. And he means praise. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. And I I rocked back when I read that. I said, if that's true, that's the answer of how God's self-exaltation and summoning me constantly to praise Him is not egomania, it's love. Because if Lewis is right, then you always don't just respond to your joy by praising what you enjoy, but you complete the joy. And if you're watching something that's just thrilling to you and there's nobody around to say, isn't that great? Isn't that beautiful? You feel incomplete. It's the verbalization, the expression in some way. That's great. That's beautiful. I love that. That completes it. If you just, you know, if you went to a, what do you call rugby game? Whatever the strange thing is that they do down here, can't figure it out. But if you go to that, I presume there'd be thousands of people. And what if they passed out tickets at the beginning and says, enjoy to the full, but nobody can say anything or move a muscle? I mean, would the joy level go up? No. It would be totally cramped. Like, duh. <laughs> You must say, yes, that was an awesome, what do you call it, shot? I don't know. (laughs) Kick. Try. Oh. (laughs) I think I heard somebody say that. C.S. Lewis, I think, has a key that has at least unlocked the Bible, unlocked my life, namely that God's summoning us to see him, know him, and to praise him is not 
because he will not be God until his ego is stroked, but that I will not be glad until I praise him. Which means God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the most loving act. You may not copy him in this. One being alone provides for me and my aching soul the all-satisfying vision that I was created for, himself. He's the one being for whom to lift up his glory, to protect his glory, to magnify his glory, to vindicate his glory, is to preserve and to provide for me the one thing that will make me happy forever. It's an awesome discovery. Let me read maybe one more text and we'll wrap it up. John seventeen twenty four. This is... I believe an act of love for Jesus to pray like this. Would you agree that the high priestly prayer for us in John 17 is an act of love? I hope so. I think Jesus is loving me as he prays John 17. And here's the way he prays. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Now, Michael Prowse, till God touches him, is going to stumble over that. Eric Reese is going to stumble over that and call that egomania. If, if I were to pray that, I pray that all the folks that have come to Oxygen would one day be able to see John Piper's glory. You would, of course, say, I'm an egomaniac and send me home in a box, which would be totally fitting. But Jesus said that, and because he is who he is, it's not egomania. It's love. He is the one person whose, whose glory I was made to know and delight in and admire forever. Nothing short of him can satisfy my soul. And therefore, his self-exaltation is an act of love. It's not arrogance, it's grace. What I'm going to do tonight is take you one step further, Lord willing. Not only is his self-exaltation love in that it calls forth my satisfaction in him, but my satisfaction in him is the way that he receives most glory. If that's true the implications for how we live our lives and the place of joy in our lives is simply massive. Father, I pray that you would overcome any obstacles that I've put in the way or that Satan puts in the way or that the cares and the pleasures of this life put in the way or that obstructions of affliction put in the way, and that you would make the soil good here so that 30, 60, 100-fold fruit would come. Cause us not to be offended at your God-centeredness. Cause us to rejoice 
that you will do anything and everything to preserve and uphold the one reality that will satisfy our souls forever. There is a river. There is a river of delights flowing out from your throne. We just want to live in it. So help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.